you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. We will look at the final verses of that chapter as well as the, just briefly at the first few verses of chapter 8. Acts chapter 7, and we'll be in verses 54 through chapter 8, verse 4. When I was a child and we visited my grandparents' house, my sisters and I usually had little say as to what was watched on the television in the main living room. Uh, it sat on the floor. It was one of those encased by wood, if you remember those. And um, we were not in charge of that TV. Um, if Uncle Randy was there, that meant that the Cleveland Browns were on TV. Um, if it was a holiday where there was no football, then sometimes we got to watch some bits and pieces of a Star Wars movie marathon that was on some network station or something like that. Um, but eventually, my grandparents got a VHS player, probably as a gift from their, their children. Um, but the only movie that I remember them ever owning was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That was the only movie at my grandma's house. Uh, so whenever we were there, if there was no football game on and there was nothing better to watch, we watched uh, Indy and his his father. We watched all the different scenes, at least most of them. Except there was one scene that we didn't watch. Uh, it was the scene where the villain chooses poorly and dies a fairly gruesome death. And that scene, we as kids did not watch. I remember that scene vividly because I was always behind my grandfather's light blue lazy boy recliner hiding when that scene happened, and then I would come back out. I mention that because death, even in the movies, is not something that we want to stare into the face of. Uh, and not just our own death, but even the, the deaths of others. Uh, death can be a haunting thing, uh, a difficult thing to take in. Maybe it's it's just a little bit too real for us. And yet here at the end of Acts chapter 7, Luke details for us the death of Stephen, not in some sort of gruesome Steven Spielberg sort of way, but in a just a clear straightforward way. And while our, our tendency would be to sort of rush past this or to shield our eyes from it, to hide behind the recliner, as it were, we are asked by the Word of God to consider and to think about how Stephen died. And when we look at the, the death of this man of God, the, the first martyr of our faith, we can learn much about how to die and also how to live for the glory of God. Over the past two weeks, we've considered our brother in Christ, Stephen, an early leader in the church, marked as a man being full of the Spirit, who had boldly shared the gospel with various synagogues throughout Jerusalem, only to be arrested and accused of blaspheming God, the temple, Moses, and um, Moses, and what else did he blaspheme? Uh, <laughs> Moses uh, and the law. Uh, Acts 7 records for us, his defense that he gave on the, the streets of Jerusalem. And in this chapter, there are two main threads that we sort of trace. The first one is regarding the blaspheming of God in the temple. Stephen explained that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. He lives in his redeemed people. And to the charge of blaspheming Moses and the law, Stephen shows his great respect for Moses and then turns the tables on the crowd and he says, you guys are the ones who are, are stiff-necked, who resist the Holy Spirit, and who resist Jesus, the righteous one, 
And this is just par for the course because you've always resisted God's Spirit and you've always rejected His deliverers, just as each one of us will do apart from God's work in us. If the crowd had wanted to prove Stephen wrong, even just out of spite, then they would have listened to him. But instead they do exactly what he said their fathers had always done. And we see that the crowd is stiff-necked, is uncircumcised in heart and ears, and that in all of this, they they are angered at what Stephen says. And in their anger and in their resistance and in their stiff-neckedness, we see our own resistance to the gospel. We see how violent our resistance to God's message can be. Look at me. Look with me at Acts seven fifty-four through eight four as Luke describes what happens after Stephen's defense. Luke 7, beginning in verse 54. Now, when they, that's the crowd, heard these things spoken by Stephen, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. In the way Luke has written this description of the final hours of Stephen's life, what stands out most strongly in this passage are the, the supernatural, is the supernatural spirit way, spirit filled way that Stephen dies in contrast to the visceral violent rejection of the crowd. We see a few other pieces. We see Saul in the background approving of Stephen's execution. We see the church's response in a couple of different ways. But what is most striking in this passage is the contrast between the violence of the crowd and the peacefulness of Stephen. If I had the skill and were able to paint this scene, I would try to capture that darkness and light in in the way that they contrast in some way between the the crowd and, and Stephen. In fact, the artist Rembrandt, he did depict this scene in what is actually considered his first signed piece of art. And in that painting, if you look at it, there's almost a diagonal line drawn through the middle of the canvas, and one side is much darker, and one side is is much lighter. Interesting about that painting also is that there are said to be three self-portraits of the artist within his this representation. So Rembrandt, who at the time when he painted it was 19 years old, placed himself in the crowd that executed Stephen. 
as if to ask himself how he would have responded had he been there, and maybe even acknowledging the rebellious nature of his own heart and the grace of God. I think like Rembrandt, we're all invited to place ourselves in this scene. Not simply to look at it from afar, but to let the words of Stephen ring in our ears, his his words of truth, his call for the forgiveness of the executioners. We should pause. We should hear this crowd shouting violently against him. We should hear, not dwell on, but at least think about the gut-wrenching sound of stones striking Stephen's body and killing him. We need to pause and acknowledge that this is a ruthless, ferocious scene, while at the same time being one that's marked by unique calm and peace in the person of Stephen. What a contrast. We should see that the light of Stephen shines brightly against the darkness that surrounded him and that the light of the glory of Jesus shines brightly even in the midst of this terrible scene. There are various characters in this story, and we might put our faces, paint our faces, as it were, onto each of them. We are the crowd who stoned Stephen. We are Saul standing in the shadows. We are Stephen, or we might say that we're striving to follow Stephen as he followed Christ. And we are the church that witnessed and heard these things in that day, and even in this day as we hear it in God's Word. And as we look at the faces of each of these characters and start to see ourselves in them, this is my prayer for this afternoon, that we would become more and more convinced of this truth. We serve a Savior and proclaim a message worth living and dying for. We serve a Savior and we proclaim a message that is worth living and dying for. In thinking about all the darkness and the light that we find here, I believe that we are supposed to be convinced that Stephen is the man that we want to stand with. That the one who is killed is actually the one who is victorious. That we have the same Savior in Jesus Christ as Stephen did, and we have the same message of hope. And so we can say with Stephen, we serve a Savior and we proclaim a message that is worth living and dying for. I think if I say that, we serve a Savior and proclaim a message worth living and dying for, we would all agree with that in our heads. If we were a church that said amen in response to things, that would get an amen. But do we feel that in our bones? Do we feel that deep in our souls? And and not just do we feel it, but is it evidenced in the way that we live our lives? And will that belief shine forth when the time does come for us to die. I want to think about that. And as we look at these verses, I want to think about this idea that we serve a Savior and proclaim a message worth living and dying for. And so I first want to paint our faces on the crowd. And remember this. In our flesh, we violently reject Jesus and his message. In our flesh, we violently reject Jesus and his message. Now, this is essentially a restatement of what we said last week, and so I don't want to drag this point out, but I just want us to notice the way that that Luke describes the, the crowd and how his description shows that what Stephen said was true. What they do affirms that Stephen was right when he said what he said about who they were. So in verse 54... We see that they were enraged and they gnashed their teeth. They ground their teeth at Stephen. 
of that picture, one commentator says of the crowd that they had passed beyond articulate speech into the inarticulate utterances of animal ferocity. They would not be accused of blasphemy and stiff-neckedness or of being uncircumcised by this man. And so they, they bared their teeth, is what it looks like, and they surrounded him like a pack of wolves. Stephen then spoke further about seeing Jesus exalted at God's right hand, and verse 58 says that they shouted louder than his voice, and they plugged their ears against his words, which they would have considered blasphemy. The description that Luke is giving us here is is of madness and fury overtaking a crowd. Maybe you've witnessed this in some sense, but they had been this listening group, and now they become a violent mob, and they are unwilling to let any kind of fair trial happen, and they are unstoppable by any of the authorities that are around them. Nothing can be done with this crowd at this point. And in their rage to silence Stephen, they rush at him, they throw him out of the city, and they stone him to death. Like Jesus, Stephen was removed from Jerusalem. He was probably stripped naked, and then large stones were thrown by the crowd, and they began to crush him, and then they killed him, and then they buried him. In this scene, we see the violence of the crowd, but we also see just how violently we all will oppose God's salvation to us in Christ. We want nothing to do with it, and we will do anything to keep it from convicting us of our sin and forcing us to admit our need of a Savior. And when we see ourselves in the crowd, we realize that the miracle of the gospel is that God, by His Spirit, can soften our hard hearts and open our deaf ears so that we would repent and believe in Christ and be saved from the judgment that we deserve, rather than reject Him to the point that we would be lost forever. We are this crowd apart from God's grace. And this violent opposition is also how the world, the flesh, and the devil have always opposed Jesus and his gospel. The history of the church is a history of opposition. Stephen may have been the first martyr, but he was not the last. Each of the apostles, except for John, who was, who was simply sent to an island, each of them died violent deaths for their faith in Jesus. And from those early days until this very day, many who have proclaimed Jesus as Lord and Savior have faced persecution, they have faced violence, and they have faced death for their belief in Christ. And they did it because they were convinced that Jesus was a Savior and the gospel was a message worth living and dying for. And so may we hear Stephen's voice and may we hear their voice and learn from their lives that we proclaim a message, and we serve a Savior that's worth living and dying for. Ironically and miraculously, Saul, who held the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen that day, would become himself a martyr for Jesus. That day he stood by approving of Stephen's accusations and execution, and he was just as filled with rage as the crowd. Later on, we see him going from house to house, dragging people, men and women, to prison, spearheading this great persecution that broke out against the church. And yet, as we will soon see, even Saul, even Saul could be transformed by Christ. We might paint our faces on Saul 
and see that if there was hope for Saul, then there is hope for all of us. Because though we reject the good news of Jesus in our flesh, God and His grace can open our eyes to see that Jesus is in fact the way, the truth, and the life. That turning from sin and trusting in Christ has accomplished through His, that, that, that turning from sin and trusting in Christ and what He has accomplished through His death and resurrection is the path to salvation and eternal life. We are the crowd. We violently reject Jesus and the gospel, but by God's grace through faith in Jesus, we can be transformed as Saul was and begin to see ourselves reflected in the face of Stephen. They say that in the middle of a hurricane, it's called the eye of a storm, that the weather is calm. That while a storm can be swirling and raging around it, the center of a hurricane is a place of peace. And as we look at this picture of Stephen, Stephen is himself the eye of the hurricane that is surrounding him. Violence is what marks the crowd, but peace and calm and clarity are what mark Stephen. And while we want to rightly honor Stephen as an unbelievable example of faith and righteousness, the secret to his response is found in the words of verse 55. It says, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, recognizing the divine at work in us is what will allow us to live and die in service to Jesus. Stephen was not unique in the sense that there was something special in himself apart from God, but rather it was God in him that made him able to respond in the way that he did. And if that's true, then God's Spirit is in us, and we can live and die even like Stephen. The inner power of God's Spirit causes us to truly believe that we serve a Savior and we proclaim a message that's worth living and dying for. And Stephen, a man full of the Spirit, controlled and driven by his power and presence, shows us how to live and die in a way that would honor God. That's what we all want. We want to live and die in a way that will honor Christ. And as we are filled with God's Spirit, we will follow in Stephen's death, in Stephen's steps. How would we see the, the filling of the Spirit? I, I want to give you four ways that we, that are seen in this scene of how we are, we walk in the Spirit, how we can see the evidence of the Spirit in us. So when we're filled with the Spirit, we see the glory of Jesus clearly. When we are filled with the Spirit, we see the glory of Jesus clearly. Verse 55 tells us that Stephen saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And verse 56 then tells us that he told the crowd what he saw. Both of these ideas would have enraged the crowd, which they did. So first, the fact that Stephen, like Moses, could see the glory of God. And second, that he said Jesus was next to God in a place of power and deity. It enraged the crowd, but it encouraged Stephen. And we, we as believers live in the light of the glory of God and the exaltation of Jesus. And when we do that, we are encouraged and we are changed. When we think about the glory of God reflected in the person of Christ, we are reminded of who Jesus is, that He is the Son of Man, fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament, that He is 
that we see in Christ what Moses saw on the mountain that caused his face to glow. And now we, like Stephen, see the glory of God in Jesus Christ, and we see it with unveiled faces. So Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and he says that we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so we behold Him, and we become more like Him. We are filled with the Spirit, brothers and sisters, when we don't forget who Jesus is and where He now is. That He is the exalted Son of God, and He is at the Father's right hand. And as we behold Him in His glory, we are reminded of some things. We're reminded of the power that He has. That He is, that, that it's as the exalted Son of God that He has poured out His Spirit on all flesh so that we can do what He's called us to do. That Jesus gives us power to say no to sin. That Jesus gives us power by His Spirit to tell the truth of the gospel in a hostile world. That Jesus will give us power even to die well. That Jesus gives us power to do everything that He's called us to do. When we think about Jesus in power, Jesus, where He is and who He is, we're reminded of the power that He has, and we're reminded of the welcome that He will give to us. Jesus is normally spoken of as sitting down at the right hand of God. Even in what Trevor read, He was sitting down, which would signify that His work of redemption is finished. But Stephen sees his Savior standing up. And most people would say that he is standing to welcome his servant Stephen home. That he honors this saint who willingly laid down his life for the glory of Jesus and the good of others. Jesus stands and honors Stephen as a man who followed in his steps. And Stephen is welcomed as a brother of Jesus and a child of God, which is what we all are through faith. And if we are children Paul writes, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. When we are filled with the Spirit, we will see the glory of Jesus clearly. And when we see the glory of Jesus clearly, that is, we will deny any desire for our own glory. When we walk through life with a vision of who Jesus is and where He is exalted at the right hand of the Father, then we are ready to welcome, that He is ready to welcome us into His blessed kingdom as sons and daughters, then any other desires for glory fade. We don't need any other glory. We don't need accolades. We don't need exaltation. If only we can glorify Christ through life and even through death. Stephen lived and died with the glory of Jesus filling his vision because when he stepped onto the road to follow Jesus, he knew that this road was the narrow way. And he knew that to follow Jesus was to deny himself, to take up his cross, and to follow Jesus. What filled Stephen's eyes at the end was not some vision of him being commemorated as the first martyr of the Christian faith. It didn't cross Stephen's mind, but rather he had a vision of the glory of Jesus shining forth from his life and even through his death. And that's what captured Stephen and let him live and die in the way that he did. And his life calls us to live with that vision, to live before the face of God, whether in life or in death. When we're filled with the Spirit of God, we see the glory of Jesus clearly. And beholding Him, we want to glorify Him, and we want to become more like Him. 
When we're filled with the Spirit, we see the glory of Jesus clearly, but also when we're filled with the Spirit, we entrust all that we are to Jesus. We entrust, we give everything that we are to Jesus. As Christ suffered on the cross, he cried out near the end of his life. He said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And here, Stephen echoes those words, but rather than committing his soul to the Father, he gives it to Jesus. It says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's not to diminish the glory of the Father, but rather to enhance the glory of Jesus to this crowd and to show that, that he was there at the right hand of the Father. In the end, Stephen announces that he can trust Jesus to rightly and powerfully deal with his eternal soul. This decision in this moment to entrust his soul to Jesus was not made just then, but rather this was made the day that he chose to follow Jesus. For everyone who trusts in Christ, for all of us who have put our faith in Jesus, what we are trusting at the very bottom is that he is going to take our souls to heaven. That we're trusting that he can take our our lives and he can take our souls and make them count for eternity. That he can rightly handle our eternal souls and preserve them for us. That's what we're trusting God to do. That we have a soul and we're giving it to Jesus' care to take care of it for us for all eternity when we die. And if he's able to do that, if that's true, then we're also called to entrust to him all that we are. We're called to entrust to him all of these fleeting days. We're called to give him all that we have and all that we are in every moment. We are to trust that he can take our eternal souls to heaven. And we're also to trust that he can take all of our fleeting days and make them eternally valuable. That he can take the work of our hands that feels so insignificant at times, and he can make it eternally valuable. And so when we entrust ourselves to Jesus, we say to him, take my life, Jesus. Take my strength, take my money, my time, take my energy, take my talents, take my abilities, take my ambitions and dreams, take my hands, my feet, my eyes, my ears, take when I'm awake and when I'm asleep, take all my working and all my playing, my friends, my loved ones, take everything that I have. I entrust everything to you, Jesus, because it's from you and it's for you. And I've been bought by you and it's all yours. And so I'm entrusting, I'm giving everything back to you, Jesus, including my very soul. As you look at Stephen, who entrusts himself to Christ, we might ask, what are we withholding from Jesus? What don't we trust him with? If we can trust Him with our very souls, then we should be able to trust Him with everything else in our lives. Knowing that if He did not, that if the Father did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, then He will freely give us everything else. We can entrust Him with all that we have. When we're filled with the Spirit, we see the glory of Jesus clearly. When we're filled with the Spirit, we entrust all that we are to Jesus. Third, when we're filled with the Spirit, we walk in the ways of Jesus. When we're filled with the Spirit, we walk in the ways of Jesus. The starkest comparison in this passage is this. On the one hand is the crowd so enraged at the words of a man who was seeking only their good 
that they were willing to crush his body with stones that they threw. And on the other hand, a man so filled with the Spirit of Jesus that he saw their ignorance and he pled with his Father not to hold their sin against them. That he pled with God that God would forgive those that were killing him. This was the way of Jesus. Jesus, who from the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Stephen, led by God's Spirit, did not return the crowd's insults. He did not seek to harm his enemies. He shows us what Peter shows us in 1 Peter 2, where he writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Sounds like Stephen to me. Bitterness and rage and anger. These are the natural avenues of our sinful heart. When people wrong us for whatever reason or when they falsely accuse us or when they misrepresent us, that's how we want to respond. We want to be bitter, we want to get angry, and we want to retaliate. But when Jesus fills our heart, we find that there are new highways that our heart wants to travel down. And one of the key interstates that we need to keep finding ourselves on is forgiveness. It's to see the sin of others against us and not to be filled with rage and anger over the fact that we have been wronged, but rather to be overwhelmed by the ignorance and the blindness that sin causes in others. To see that people don't know what they are doing and to forgive them, even in the midst of their sin. That kind of radical forgiveness is a fruit of God's Spirit working in us. The Spirit leads us to walk in the ways of Jesus, ways that are free from bitterness and free from anger, ways of forgiveness and peace, no matter how violent the world around us might become. Ask the Spirit to search your heart for anger, for unforgiveness, for bitterness. Maybe it's at a specific person. Maybe it's at some faceless group of people. Maybe it's just at the general fact that God's will and ways are opposed in this world. And in that that rage, may the Spirit fill you with forgiveness, with an awareness that those who fight against you and who fight against the church and who fight against our Father, while they are responsible in one sense, in another sense, they have no idea what they're doing. They don't know that they are fighting against a God who loves them. They don't know that they're storing up wrath for themselves for all eternity. They don't know that they're just snuffing out the light of the gospel in their lives. But I wonder if they might come to know the truth of the gospel when they witness followers of Jesus like you and like me walking in his ways, walking especially in the way of forgiveness. We live in a world that knows how to dismiss some sin while also vehemently accusing people of other sins. We're really good at shoving some sins under the carpet and exalting others and saying that anyone who does this is wrong. We live in a world that, that, that doesn't know how to call sin sin, but also doesn't know how to, how to bring forgiveness when sin is real. 
And so we stand as God's people, as those who can acknowledge the ugliness of all sin, but also those who know that the remedy that's in Jesus is forgiveness. When we're filled with the Spirit, we will we will see the glory of Jesus clearly. We will entrust all that we are to Jesus. We will walk in the ways of Jesus. And when we're filled with the Spirit, death will be like falling asleep. When we are filled with the Spirit, death will be like falling asleep. Stoning was not a quiet way to die. And yet Luke tells us that when Stephen died, he fell asleep. I think Stephen was like a new kind of Lazarus. You remember Jesus said that Lazarus was asleep and they needed to go wake him up. But Lazarus would die again. And yet Stephen, who dies here, was raised to eternal life and he lives even now. And that made his death as peaceful as falling asleep even though he was being pummeled with stones. Because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the sting of death is gone because of what Christ has done. When you think about Stephen in death, he was filled with a vision for the glory of God so that that the death of his earthly glory was really of no concern to him. He didn't mourn the loss of anything that he had in this world because he knew that Jesus was the source of any earthly glories. And so to be with him was to know all of those glories more fully. In death, Stephen knew that Jesus could be trusted to care for his eternal soul. And so he was at perfect peace. He had already given every part of himself to the care of Jesus. And so death was just a fuller realization of what he'd already done. I've already given myself to Jesus and now I'm dying. And it's just becoming more real in this moment. In death, Stephen walked in the ways of Jesus. He remembered that Jesus too had died, but he also remembered that Jesus was resurrected. And so as he follows his Savior into the valley of the shadow of death, he also knows that there's glory on the other side. That to walk with Jesus in the way of dying would also be to walk with him out of the grave in eternal resurrection. And if that's all true, and by the Spirit, Stephen could remember all that in this moment, then death became like falling asleep. And for us too, as we each face death, if we face it in the power of the Spirit, we can know that even if our death is a painful one or a violent one, that it's like falling asleep. We serve a Savior and we proclaim a message that's worth living and dying for. And we can follow Stephen as he followed Christ when we're filled with the Spirit because it's the same Spirit The Spirit has not changed from when Stephen died to this very moment. The same Spirit lives and resides in us, and as we are filled with Him and yielded to Him, 
we can walk in the same way. If death is like falling asleep, then falling asleep can be practice for dying well. So as you lay your head on the pillow each night this week, you might pause and remember what Stephen's life and death have have shown us. And so I want to give you a very simple acronym from the word REST, R-E-S-T. The goal is in giving you an acronym that it's something you can remember and you don't have to have something in front of you as you are falling asleep. And maybe you fall asleep before you get all through all four letters and that's okay. But in thinking about this as we fall asleep, we are preparing to die well when the time comes. So here's your acronym, R. This is just what we said already, but put in a different format. R, remember where Jesus is. You're laying in your bed in the darkness. Remember where Jesus is. He's at the Father's right hand. He has all power. He has welcomed us and He will welcome us as members of His family. So remember where Jesus is. E, entrust all that you are to Him. In that moment, entrust all that you are to Jesus. Take every part of your body, every piece of your life, every moment, and give it to Jesus. And then in some new, fresh way, give Him your eternal soul. And trust that He can care for it. Remember where Jesus is. Entrust all that you are to Him. Seek to walk in His ways. That's your S. Seek to walk in His ways. If forgiveness is the path that we need to be on, then give forgiveness freely before you close your eyes. Give it to anyone and everyone. And then seek forgiveness from the Father for the ways that you've fallen short of His glory. Remember where Jesus is. Entrust all that you are to Him. Seek to walk in His ways. And T, trust that death is a doorway. Trust that death is a doorway that if, as the rhyme says, if you should die before you wake, you will arise in the presence of our God and Savior. Trust that death is a doorway. And if you don't wake up, isn't that a good way to die? (laughs) But, and this is my hope for you, if instead you would rise up in the morning and you're still in this world, then we can live remembering where Jesus is. And we can all day long from the first moment of the morning till the last moment of the day entrust all that we are to Him. We can seek to walk in His ways. And we can trust that when it comes, death is a doorway to true and to eternal life.